0: Thank you, worship team. Let's open the Word of God, please, to First Peter three eighteen. First Peter in the New Testament. Uh, the Bible is a big book, but it only has two parts. The first part is called the Old Testament, and the Old Testament books were written before the coming of Christ. Uh, the Old Testament is partial, preliminary, and it points to the coming of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ filled with prophecies, some of which were fulfilled in his first coming as the Lamb of God, others wait to be fulfilled in his second coming as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, the second part of the Bible is called the New Testament, and we're in the New Testament right now in our study of First Peter, and those are the biblical books written immediately after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And uh, they show how the Old Testament pointed to Christ and talk about... Uh, the way we should think about ourselves, God and the Savior, so that we can come to Him in faith and glorify Him by the way we live. So if I can get my PowerPoint up here, we will look at first Peter three, eighteen through twenty two. And I always say all these passages are great and they all are, but this is a, an especially unique passage for a number of reasons, as you'll see. Now, we're in the book of First Peter, and the book of First Peter, uh like the Bible. Uh, has two parts. First part of the book talks about living your faith under fire 101 and talks about, reminds Christians who are struggling and suffering. And Sue Smith-Raska has been suffering and struggling with uh, some medical issues for a long time now. And Linda Keeney has entered a whole new phase of her life uh, that is very challenging. And so these, among others of us, are living our faith under fire. And the first part of the book this reminds you of the basics of faith in Christ and the importance of uh, living a life of good works, not to be saved, but because we are saved, even when your faith is under fire. And then the second part of the book, and we're in that now, uh, 2.13 through 5.14, uh, is kind of uh, the second course of the two-course set, Faith Under Fire 102. And it's all about submission and dealing with intense, undeserved suffering. So this is a book that uh, really is very helpful to people who are struggling with uh, unfair suffering. And as somebody once said, uh, every Christian you're going to bump into is either in a crisis, just coming out of a crisis, or just about to go into a crisis. Now, overarching over those two parts is the purpose statement, and I think that's in red, isn't it? 2.11-12. Um, which says in the purpose statement, the key to the book, Heath, is right in the middle of the house. You know, you got the two parts. One part leads to the purpose statement. Second part leads from the purpose statement. Uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an alien. You are an, a, a member of a persecuted, marginalized, misunderstood minority group. And the sociologists tell us there's about 2.1 billion Christians in the world, and I think the theologians would say the number is smaller than that, but there's over 7 billion people in the world, so we're less than a third. Visible Christendoms, is less than a third of the population, and it's actually real Christendom is much smaller than that. So that's always been true, even though Christianity is the largest world religion, it's still a minority group. So if you're a believer, you are an alien, not from outer space. But you've got a home out of this world living as short timers on earth. And that's Carol Wanzer or, uh, um, is that a Hawaiian shirt? Or are we going to call that a, a Dunk, Duncan shirt there, Stan? It's not church building That's man. <laughs> Thanks for dressing up for church, man. That's awesome. Uh, but uh, even Stan's a short timer on earth. In fact, if you wear that in certain places, you'll have a much shorter Life on our, uh, a, uh, but we're all spiritual aliens, and we even if we live to be 110, that's just a blip compared to eternity. So, Gibson, this applies to you. Uh, Gibson, love it like other Christians, should not be controlled by our emotions and our feelings and our urges. I hear people saying, well, I have an urge to do this, that, and the other, so you have to placate me, bend your way over backward to put up with me and enable me. And when I hear people say stuff like that, I get urges that I can't act out on. So, I mean, you can't let your urges totally drive you. You're going to be in trouble. But rather than be controlled by our emotions, or our feelings, or our urges, we should consistently live our faith centered on the one we trusted for eternal life, on our Lord Jesus Christ, so that unbelievers who slander us because they actually read the propaganda about how repressive and backward and dangerous we are, uh, because we are believers in christ we'll see the reality of christ we can't argue with him and ultimately glorify god by coming to him in faith so that's our broad context let's read our passage here we looked at the first part of this uh, last week verse 18 we're going to focus on 19 20 and 21 22 uh, today but let's look at uh, verse 18 verse 18 first peter 3 verse 18 okay For Christ also suffered for sins, and all of your sins, and everything that could keep you out of heaven, Christ died and paid for, once for all, because it was a perfect, final, complete payment price. The just him for the unjust, all of us, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which, in his Spirit, between his death and his resurrection, uh, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, and we're not talking about the Oklahoma State Penitentiary or Folsom Prison, we're talking about a different kind of spiritual prison. Spirits who've been in this special prison uh, because they were once spectacularly disobedient uh, during the days of Noah when the patience of God kept waiting 120 years in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which... In which, that is, inside of the ark, a few people, eight persons only, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism, not water baptism, spirit baptism that puts you in the ark of Christ, now saves you, not the water that washes you off when you're baptized, the removal of the dirt from the flesh, but the appeal, the basis you have now to live before God with a good conscience through and because of the resurrection of Christ, which validates His saving work. And where's Christ now? The ultimate submitter, the ultimate sufferer is in the highest possible place in heaven too. In the time-space universe, He's at the right hand of God the Father, having gone into heaven, ascension, remember the death of Christ, three days later resurrection, 40 days later the ascension. Since the ascension, He has visibly manifest His presence at the right hand of God the Father in heaven too. After angels, authorities, and powers had been visibly subjected to him. Okay, so um, like I started out last week, it's funny because to me, I read that passage. And I'm thinking, "Wow, Peter's doing to us what Peter kind of mentions Paul does to him in Second Peter." You got First Peter, we're looking at today. The second, the twin of that, is a second book called Second Peter. Peter at the end of that book says about the apostle Paul and his 13 letters in the New Testament. Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you speaking of these and these, speaking of them in these kind of, about these kind of things, spiritual things, in which some of the stuff he wrote was hard to understand. And it's going to be very capable of being distorted by the untaught. Well, when you're talking about baptism saving you, and you most of you know better than think than to think a ritual could save you like that. Uh and Christ going to prison and speaking to prison prisoners that are there because of something they did during Noah's time, that's hard to understand too. In fact, uh Martin Luther in his commentary on first Peter and I quote, a talking about these verses, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Okay? So i got to preach that in uh, 40 minutes. Okay, we'll try. Uh, Context, context, context. We're going to focus on that always around here, Robert. Now, the most important thing in Bible study is context. We tend to rip these verses out like Bible McNuggets, and we ignore what's said before or after. Most Bible questions are answered in the verse before, the verse after, the the larger paragraph. But the big principle I'd like to emphasize one more time is when the content of a particular biblical biblical statement seems especially difficult, like Jesus going to prison and talking to prisoners and stuff, uh, then the context becomes especially important. It's always important, but we're going to talk about biblical context and uh, context in First Peter as we try to negotiate our way through these verses this morning. But let's pray for teachability. We're going to need it because this is kind of heavy lifting here as we go through these verses. And as is our custom, let's pray not just that we'll be teachable t- to the Holy Spirit. You know, he inspired the text and now we're praying that he'll illumine Mimi and and Deborah and Tommy and Brad as we go through it. But let's also pray for our firefighters and our peace officers, and our active military also, okay? So um, Lloyd uh, Davis, if you would, pray for us in that direction. Yeah, you get that Channel 7 weather app and it gives you all these audio. Precipitation has been seen within 50 miles of your location. You get all these kind of wonderful locations. Um, you know, Jenny cranks out a, a world-class newsletter for us uh, at TBF here. She took July off, which is something we've kind of become accustomed to doing, but she's going to give you kind of a double dose in August. But uh, I was looking at a website called the Babylon Bee. Now, the Babylon Bee is a Christian satire site. Christians are making fun of some of the funny things Christians do, and these are some mock headlines, and so I thought I'd call these uh, church news you will never find in a TBF newsletter. But if you want the whole article, you can read them on the Babylon Bee. Uh, here's a, uh, a screenshot from the Babylon Bee, a fake headline. Local church offers introvert service where nobody has to talk to anyone else. So, yeah, some people don't like to talk to people at church. Uh, Man vows to forcibly remove any church visitor sitting in his seat this Sunday. Entire church body suffers heat stroke as thermostat sets slightly above 70 degrees. And some people, and I'm married to one, you know, if it's more than 72 degrees in a building, you know, it's just like DEFCON 5, you know. And then the final one is, I like this one, uh, man carefully selects which of his 28 study Bibles looks best with his outfit. And sometimes you wonder if people are picking which Bible they bring for purposes like that. I don't know that, but I hope not. Yeah, Uh, looking at verses 18 through 22, last week we looked at verse 18, this time we'll look at 19 through 22, this is all one unit of thought, and I think it boils down to this, despite all of the spectacular details we're going to look at, God is glorified by and will vindicate believers who in faith suffer unfairly in this world. And that vindication will be primarily out of this world. Okay, uh, But I think that's the big picture. And so when you start this passage, verse 18, for, and that's the Greek word for because, he said, hey, it's better in God's will for Natalie to do the right thing and suffer for it than to avoid that suffering by doing the wrong thing. So it's better if God should will it that you suffer for doing the right thing rather than doing the wrong thing and not suffering for it. And think about the ultimate example of unfair suffering, that would be Jesus on the cross, because that's the whole basis of your salvation. Christ died for sins once for all, just for the unjust. They might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Remember he says to the gangster crucified next to him. And now we're going to go from that and look at verses 19 through 22. But let me just remind you that we do have that general principle in the paragraph immediately before the one we're looking at, which kind of talks about the what, gives us this general principle. Uh, better do the will of God and suffer than to avoid suffering by not doing the will of God. And now we're getting motivation, we're getting the how this should be done, uh, because Christ is the ultimate example of this. Now, look at verses 19 and 20. In which, in his spirit, between his death and his resurrection, when he told the gangster they would spend the bulk of that time, or he'd spend the bulk of that time with him in paradise, in which, in his spirit, he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were egregiously, especially, almost indescribably disobedient. This is way off the charts. Uh, during the period of the construction of the ark, which was 120 years, when the patience of God, with a world that had systematically, deliberately of humanity, had turned their backs on God's reality, his promises of salvation, and were especially malignant and violent and doing all kinds of horrible things to each other, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, the 0.001% of the world's population that actually was in the faith at that point, uh, those eight people, who were they? Noah, his wife, three sons, and their wives, right? They hadn't had the joy of being grandparents, but they would. Okay, So you guys know what that feels like. they are no grandkids yet in which a few people, that is eight, were brought safely through the water. Okay, look at that. Uh, Jesus in the spirit, between the crucifixion and resurrection. There are several ways people understand this. Uh, I'm going to preach my convictions, not uh, the commentaries today, as I tend to do. But uh, if you need a refresher course, remember, and I really was going to wipe out that URD, against upper room discourse, so just ignore the URD there. But Christ dies on a Friday. Three days later, He is resurrected from the dead. What happened? And after He starts appearing to the apostles and to the, to the women at the tomb and the apostles, He actually makes appearances for 40 days. And at the end of that 40 day period from the resurrection to the ascension, that's when Jesus physically returns to heaven, right? And then 10 days after that, the, the church starts in Acts chapter 2. So we're talking about an event here that took place between the death of Christ and his resurrection, uh, today we'll be in paradise, he tells the gangster who believed, and we're reading about that. At least that's my conviction here. In which, in the spirit, between his death and his physical resurrection, he went, in addition to spending most of his time in paradise, we'll show you what that means in a minute. We don't have any photographs, but we do have a schematic. Um I that'd go over better than that, but it's kind of a joke, but it's true. Uh, in which, in the spirit, he went and made proclamation to spirits. We're talking about fallen angels who had done some especially egregious, horrific things during Noah's period, who now are in that spiritual prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God waited during the period of Noah. Now, we've got a couple of parallel passages. The most significant one here is in Second Peter, and that's really helpful, Doug, because when you're studying First Peter... If you find a parallel passage in Leviticus or Nehemiah or Second Peter, I'm going to start with one in Second Peter. Think in terms of concentric circles, you know, you don't necessarily start when you're in Ephesus or Ephesians with every little possible nuance in Genesis it relates. You think about Ephesians three and Ephesians four and the rest of Ephesians and maybe Colossians the rest of Paul's works like that. So look what Second Peter uh says about the same spirits that he's preaching to, I'm convinced, or making an announcement to. Uh, in a slightly different context, Peter says, uh, and in the context he's saying, hey, uh, bad people are going to get what they deserve, either now or in eternity. God did not spare the angels. He calls them spirits in First Peter 3.19, but there he calls them angels, fallen angels, who had sinned egregiously, but cast them into, King James did us no favors, says hell there. Okay? And that's a real generic term because it actually the original text uses a specific term, which is a proper name for a, a compartment in Sheol. I'll explain Sheol in a second. Called Tartarus. So I'm just going to transliterate that. God was not unaware, nor did he fail to hold responsible demons who sinned egregiously during the Noah. Noahic era, but cast them directly into a place called Tartarus, a spiritual domain there, and committed them there to pits of darkness. Uh, And God did not spare the wicked world, the ancient world, which had turned their back on him and were egregiously violent and evil, but did preserve Noah with seven others. There's our eight, Noah plus seven is eight, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Okay, here's our schematic. Now, if you haven't seen this before, I know it may give you a nightmare, it may weird you out, but all I can say is, when you read the Old Testament carefully, Linda, everybody who is said, who is commented on in the text after they die is said to go to Sheol. Now that's a Hebrew word, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Quite often that's just translated to the grave, but there are, and there are times when it just refers to dying generically, but Sheol is a place, and um, in places like Psalm one thirty nine, you know he says, "What can I? What can I go to get away from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, you're there." Sheol's a place; it's the place of the dead. And here's the thing: in the Old Testament, everybody who dies, the Midianites. Can you relate to the Midianites after last week in uh, in uh, Super Summer? Uh, the uh, Goliath he dies and goes to Sheol. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they die and go to Sheol. And that kind of throws people for a loop until you realize Sheol is a collective noun for the place of the dead. And here's the good news. In Luke 16, the Lord gives us some some information about the way Sheol works because he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man was an unbeliever, and he dies and goes to Sheol and Lazarus. The beggar was a um, was a believer, and he dies and go to Sheol, but they're in different parts. Remember that story Jesus tells? Uh they're able to interact across a great gulf fixed. I don't think they do a lot of interaction, but it's possible. But Sheol is the place of the dead, and it has two, really three compartments. The upper compartment, I'm assuming it's the upper, I'm gonna call it the penthouse of Sheol is paradise. Hey, listen, Jesus didn't go to heaven between the death and resurrection. He didn't say, I'm going to go to heaven. We're going to go to heaven today. He said, today we'll go to paradise. And we know that because on the day of the resurrection, when Mary sees him at the tomb after the resurrection, she grabs hold of him, and like any good woman would do, when somebody she loves has been lost, and now he's back there, she's not going to let go. And he has to say, I think he lets her hold on to him for a couple minutes, then he says, look, You need to let go because I've not yet ascended to my Father in heaven. I've only got 40 days to do the stuff I've got to do here. So he doesn't go to heaven, Jesus, until his ascension, okay? But he tells the thief on the cross, the gangster, today you'll be with me in paradise. Where's paradise? Well, in that period, everybody who dies goes to Sheol. But the good news is, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob went to the upper compartment of Sheol just like Lazarus went to the upper compartment of Sheol that's where Jesus and the thief on the cross went so the upper compartment of the place of the dead is called paradise or Abraham's bosom because of the King James rendering of uh, Luke 16 that's the penthouse that's the good that's the happy place okay uh, upper compartment of Sheol the second compartment of Sheol is described as torment as a place of regret and pain uh, and that's where Goliath is, okay? That's where unbelievers are. In fact, still to this day, that's where unbelievers go, their spirits go when they die. But in the Old Testament, everybody who dies goes to Sheol, but believers in the promises of the Messiah go to the blessed uh, upper compartment of Sheol, paradise. Unbelievers go to the lower place. But we know that in fact, in connection with, the dimensions of Sheol, there's a third compartment called Tartarus because of passages like 2 Peter. And, you know, if you look really closely at my schematic, I tried to put a slight separation there, bottom right corner, uh, because I don't think Tartarus uh, allows, uh, I don't think there's any way to get from torments to Tartarus. I think those are separate, distinct places. But we've got some demons we're talking about here and I do believe in angels. I'm, I'm an unabashed, unapologetic supernaturalist. There's a lot of stuff going on in the universe. You can't measure in a test tube. You can't repeat in a laboratory. And the existence of, of angels is one of those. And I think uh there was a TV show called Touched by an Angel. which always kind of weirded me out, you know, about touching with an angel. But, uh, I mean, I think they're all around us. And I think one of the things that's going to happen the first couple of weeks in, in heaven, when you get there, you're going to get deprogrammed, and you're going to see how many times uh, an angel made this happen or that happen around you. But uh, if you have angels, you have to have demons. Demons are fallen angels, about a third of the total set rebelled against God. And here in Second or First Peter 3, we're talking about during the period between the death and the resurrection of Christ when he is in paradise primarily in Sheol, he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. That word for prison in First Peter is a generic word for a place of confinement. So it's not like Tartarus, where they kind of generically translated a, a technical term. Uh, however, the King James does us no favors in verse 19 because I believe it says they, he he preached to spirits in prison. And when, when, I'm a good Baptist boy. I grew up Baptist. I'm kind of a recovering Baptist. You know, uh, I'm still kind of got a lot of Baptist influences, and it doesn't bother me a bit, you know, most of the time. But um, it's all good, most of it. But uh, uh, when you hear the word preached, you hear, you think about the Baptist preacher preaching the gospel, right? you got to believe in Christ to be saved. And so uh, some people will say, well, what's happening here is Jesus is going down to Sheol, and he's preaching the gospel to people who died in the Old Testament, who didn't have enough moxie to realize God was making all these promises about the Savior and stuff like that or maybe even preach to these demons trying to give them a second chance. That's not what's happening here. I think what happened is, long story short, is uh, in Genesis 6 we read about some interaction between the sons of God and the daughters of men that contributed to the moral uh, disintegration of the culture that caused God to do radical surgery on the human race. I mean, you literally had 99.999% of the human race that rejected the true God, rejected any salvation in it through the true God, and were basically raping, pillaging, and murdering each other. And it was just to a point where it could not be tolerated anymore. And these demons that were consigned to prison to Tartarus in connection with this period had been intricately involved in influencing and catalyzing a lot of that. They had gone way off the reservation Uh, There are theories about exactly what they did. I think most of those theories are wrong. I'm not sure what they did to help get the human race to that point where 99.999% had willfully rejected the historical record of the real God and his uh, overtures of salvation. But they had gone way off the reservation, and they were summarily consigned to this place of punishment. Their objective was to make it impossible for God to save the world through the Messiah. But in fact, after they were consigned to Tartarus, and I take it they don't have internet, Wi-Fi, cell phones, or any manner of means of communication in Tartarus, they have no idea what's going on, I think to underscore his victory over death, not only had he arrived on schedule Messiah thousands of years later, he had finished the work of atonement And during that period where he's spending, I think, the vast majority interacting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the thief on the cross, and the other millions who had been saved in the Old Testament, he makes a victorious proclamation, not to rub it in, but just to underscore his victory over the deepest pits of degradation represented by those angels. So, during that period between the death and resurrection of Christ when he's in the spirit in that sense, among other things, he made this victorious proclamation to those especially malignant, uh, angelic, deme- de- demonic spirits who had been involved in the degradation of humanity during the Noahic period. And then he, in, in talking about that, he says, remember uh, the ark uh, saved eight persons who were brought through the water. So for lack of time, I know it's disappointing. We're not going to go through that. But uh, let's talk about going through the water, okay? Um, you know, let me ask you a question. Just just common sense. I mean, uh, when the Noahic flood came and destroyed the human race and we had a human reboot, okay, was the water a good thing for humanity or was it a bad thing? I mean, when you drown... In a worldwide flood, that's a bad thing. Now, now, let me back up. Uh, some of you are theologians saying it's not a bad thing, God sent it. You're right. You know, justice isn't pretty. God's justice isn't, justice isn't pretty, Robert. Okay? You can't make justice pretty. God's justice isn't pretty, but God's justice is always preceded and followed by God's grace. Katie, remember you told me that just a few minutes ago? Right? So, these folks had their chance, they blew it, but uh, the idea that you could be talking about the, the flood and then saying, well, in the same way that the humanity was destroyed by the flood, the water of baptism now save you. You know, the waters of the flood didn't save humanity. It wiped out humanity. So that should, just real quick, that should tell you something, okay? Because, uh, you know, there's been this debate on and off in the church for 2,000 years. Does water baptism save you? Is water baptism essential to salvation? Do You have to believe and be water baptized to be saved. And many people have taught that, okay? And, you know, I would just say, do you have to wear a wedding ring to be married. In our culture, most people who are married wear wedding rings, okay? But it's a good thing you don't have to wear a wedding ring to be married because I've lost three, three of them, okay? So, you know, and as I always say, if I take this off to play basketball or grip a golf club, Uh, I don't stop being married, but I might lose it again. (laughs) But, uh, you know, somebody else picked it up. If Cooper put it on by mistake, or if Karsten put it on by mistake, he wouldn't be married to anybody. He's just putting on, you know, a token. So water baptism is very much like a wedding ring in that sense. Now, I I know Tommy's interested in this. I know that uh, he's interested in this uh, because of their background, and I know I've told Tommy this, but just one, number one, when you've got, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 real quick. I'm going to show you the one verse I would start with, uh, if I'm talking to somebody for 30 seconds or 30 minutes on the baptism and salvation issue. But th- just, there's a mountain of biblical evidence that we're saved by grace, which is unmerited favor. 1 Corinthians 1, like 18, I'm thinking. Um, yeah, 17. I was close, you know. You were closer, but... Uh, yeah, but uh, I was going to say, uh, Ephesians 2 just clearly says, for by grace. Grace, Heath, is unmerited favor. You don't earn something. You don't deserve something. where it's giving it to you with no expectation of return. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith in Christ. Faith is just active, receptive trust. It's not a good work. Uh, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works. Now, water baptism is a work. It's a ritual. It's a good thing. I'm all for it. I've baptized many people in the baptistry here. It only takes us, by the way, it only takes three hours to fill up the tank. So, if you, if you're, it's a Saturday and you've got to be water baptized and you want to talk to me or James and you've got a good reason, biblical reason, we can baptize you. We, we can baptize you. I, I don't want to have to do this most Sundays. I'm, I'm busy on other things, but, you can call me at four in the morning on Sunday morning. If you just have to be baptized, that gives me plenty of time to get dressed. It's going to take me an hour. So that's five. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to take three hours. That's eight. It actually takes a little bit longer than that. I want to get my thoughts together. Let's make, let's make it four thirty. You call me as, you can call me as late as four thirty a.m. and we can still baptize you. So I'm all for baptism, but just there's a mountain of evidence that says we're not saved by works, not saved by works, not saved by works. And then, First Corinthians one 8, 17. Carol, this is what you need when you're talking to somebody who really wants an answer. Because I think Robert, this just as blows it away. There's no way Paul could say this if you had to be baptized to be saved. Even though I think all Christians should be baptized, but just like I think all married men should wear wedding rings, all the factors equal, and that doesn't necessarily always apply to me because I lose mine. You know, did I cover all the bases there. The things you got to think about. Uh, my lawyer's not here today, so I got to think of that myself. For Christ did not send me to baptize. But to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ would be uh, made void. But keep going, keep going, because I should have backed up. Blanche, you actually messed me up because seventeen is the climax. Seventeen is the climax. I he eventually found it, but verse fourteen. Start with verse fourteen. He's saying it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. Christ is the Savior. Don't break up in the little cliques in your church based on you like James better than Brad or Dale better than Homer or stuff like that. It's ridiculous. It's all about Christ. And he says, I thank God, verse 14, I baptized none of you. Well, except for, come and think of it, I did baptize Crispus and Gaius. So that none of you would be bragging about the fact I baptized you. And then he's older. He's kind of my age. And he's thinking, now, come think of it. Yeah, that first time I was there, I did baptize those little kids in the household of Stephanus. But other than that, I don't think I baptized any of you guys. And I'm glad I didn't. Now, if you had to be baptized to be saved, there's no way he'd say, I'm really glad I didn't baptize you. know, if that's necessary, and then he says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. I'm preaching the gospel. The gospel is the good news that because Christ died for our sins on the cross and rose again, we can have eternal life and forgiveness through faith in him. Go back to 1 Peter. Let's go back to baptism. So after talking about this demonic activity during Noah's uh, uh, ministry prior to the ark and the flood, we're told in verse 21, you know what? Yeah. We're told in verse 21, corresponding to that, that is the eight persons being saved because they were in the ark. That's what that is. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not water baptism. The flood waters were the problem for the bad thing the family was being saved from. It wasn't the savior. Now you might say it lifted them up above the, the, the surface issues, but uh, they're saved because they're in the ark, right? So corresponding to that, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that puts you into the ark of Christ is the basis of your salvation not the ritual of having water washed off you because you've been sprinkled or immersed or however you're baptized, but as the basis of an appeal to God for a good conscience. You now, because you're in Christ, can live a life that pleases Christ, and all that's ratified by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Go to 1 Corinthians again, verse chap- uh, chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm pretty sure is the verse I want this time. But, um, yeah, uh, a lot of times we don't talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit very much because our charismatic friends, I think, misinterpret it. But uh, let's just see what we're told about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I'm convinced that's what he's talking about here. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Paul says, and for context, because context is always important, especially here. Look at verse 12. For even as the body, the human body, has hands and eyes and feet, and each part has its own role. Even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one, so also is the Christ, the the body of Christ. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized, identified with, incorporated into one body, and that's the capital B, capital C, worldwide church made up of believers of all country, colors, and cultures. It doesn't matter what your background was, whether you're Jewish or Greek, which would be religious or pagan, whether you were slaves or free, all made to be of one spirit. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, even though it's totally redefined by modern charismatics, is the work of the Holy Spirit that at the moment of saving faith puts you into The New Testament body of Christ. Now, there are many local churches, denominational churches that have different procedures for joining their church, okay? I grew up in a denomination where you had to walk an aisle and and fill out some paperwork and publicly, you know, profess your faith so you could become a member of that church, that group. And they've got every right to proceed that way. And different denominations, Nicole, have different ways you join the church. How do you join this church? This is a weird church because you're as much a member as you want to be. It's not a formal membership. It's a functional membership. And if that's confusing to you, it's confusing to me. And I've been here 29 years. But when it works well, it works really well. And we don't have any paperwork nor any bishops to tell us we're not, the sign letters aren't big enough and the stuff they tell you you've got to change. So go back to 1 Peter uh the baptism, real baptism, spirit baptism, it's not experiential. You don't feel it. It's not like being doused or, or immersed into a tank of water. You feel that. But spirit baptism is the work of God that puts you into Christ. That's why uh, David tribulation is in Christ. Not because he comes to Tango with Bible Fellowship, but because when he first believed between his first and second years at Texas A&M University, and yes, he is an Aggie and yes, Aggies are superior to people who go to the University of Texas. We already know that. Okay. If you don't believe it, just look at David. But uh, the reason that uh, and he was a Baptist, I think, at that point. Were you a Baptist at that point? Yeah. So you're a recovering Baptist too? Okay, good. Uh I'm kidding, I'm kidding, of course, all the Baptists out there. I mean Heath, I think you told me you're a Baptist, so I don't want to offend you on that one. But we love everybody, even Baptists, and you know, so that's fun. But uh in the same way, the reason that those eight people survived the flood is because they were in the ark and they stayed in the ark. Okay? They lived within the confines of the ark. The way you're going to have an impact in this world is being in Christ and then living consistently with that. Okay? If you, you know, if uh, if they had jumped off the ark or slipped off the ark, they probably would have drowned. Right? So, That position is important because that's the basis for us to do the right thing for the right reasons, even when nobody else notices because we're doing it for Jesus. So that's what that means. So the baptism now saves you. Can't be ripped out. And we know what baptism is. Every month our pastor baptizes people on the third Sunday of the, of the week, of the month. And so that means water baptism saves you and we're the only ones that do it right. So you got to be a member of our group. No, don't trust in rituals, circumcision, ordination catechism, water baptism to save you, trust in Christ alone, and then as a function of confessing that, you ought to make a lot of changes in your life, and I think it's the normative way to identify with Christ to be water baptized, and I think I'm all for it, I do it all the time, but we're not talking about water baptism here, because water the waters of the flood didn't save Noah's family, Doug, it was being in the ark, being in the Christ is what saves David Emerson, not how many times he's been baptized or whether he's been baptized at all. The corresponding to the family being saved because they're in the ark, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that puts you into Christ is what saves you. It's the basis of your salvation. It's, the again, the work of God for you, not something you did for him. But it gives you the basis to live a consistent Christian life so you can have a good conscience uh, and you're living for not just the crucified but the resurrected Christ. The Christians are saved from the wrath of God because we're in the body of Christ, not through water baptism, uh, but it's spirit baptism which put us into Christ. By one spirit, we've all been baptized, identified with, placed into one body, and it transcends uh, the United States of America or Dallas Seminary or the Southern Baptist Convention or whatever group you're involved in. So baptism now saves you is the basis of, for your very salvation, not water baptism. And he couldn't go out of his way, Tommy, to emphasize we're not talking about water baptism here. Water's the problem, not the solution in verse 20. And he says, baptism now saves you. Real baptism, spirit baptism, not the ritual baptism, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, whether you're immersing or sprinkling or pouring, you're removing dirt from the flesh physically, uh, at least hypothetically, but the basis for actually living a dynamic Christian life which only comes through regeneration. Now notice, as we go to verse 22, Christ, and this is all about Christ, but we get into this minutia, which is interesting and, and important to discuss, but we're talking about Christ dying, right, uh, Blanche? In verse 18, we're talking about his being resurrected. Uh into verse 21, we're talking about his ascension and the aftermath. So one way to analyze this section would be, let's talk about the death of Christ, let's talk about the period between his resur- death and resurrection, then let's talk about his period after his resurrection and ascension. So I don't see many people noticing that because you kind of miss the forest for the trees with these other interesting and unique details. But notice we end with Christ where he is now and has been since the ascension. He is at the right hand of God the Father, having gone into heaven, having ascended into heaven after all the opposition against him and all those rooting for him had been either vindicated or had been defeated by his death, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. So boom. Now, back away from all these details, and again, I think what this statement is saying to us, verses eighteen to twenty-two, is God is glorified by and will vindicate believers who in faith suffer unfairly as in this world. That's what he's saying in context. He's saying Christ is the ultimate example about. Did Christ look like God on the cross? That he looked like he had any power over anything on the cross, he's naked, bleeding, and screaming. He says, e- uh, uh, "Eli, Eli lama which means, God, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Was he having an existential crisis? No. That's the first line of Psalm 22 in the original, and Psalm 22 is an Old Testament prophecy about the Christ being crucified and then resurrected. So the listeners would have known. He's citing Psalm 22. He's claiming to be the Messiah from Psalm 22, who is not left on a cross, although he's nailed to something. That was written in 1000 B.C. before crucifixion was invented. But he talks about having his hands and his feet pierced in that psalm. And that's what Christ is doing there. But on the cross, he doesn't look like anybody but maybe a victim of the man, victim of you know the religious and the civil authorities But in fact, God was glorified ultimately by his unfair suffering and vindicated him supremely by his resurrection and ascension. Now, we can't compare ourselves to Christ, but Peter does here. So I would say, in that sense, I think you put yourself, when you're most tempted to self-pity yourself or feel sorry for yourself, and put whatever you're dealing with, which may be very unfair and very painful and and impossible to explain, put that against the background of the cross, and it'll shrink it down enough for you to say, oh, okay, I don't understand this, but God's got this. He's done this before. He's done something like this much more difficult before. He's had a redemptive purpose for unfair suffering. He's glorified through the process And he will vindicate me. So what do you do? You just keep on doing the right thing. You keep on trusting, obeying the Lord, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting, obeying the Lord. So let me end here. I think the principle is sufferings now, superlative blessing after. And this should sound familiar because our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5 says, Blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's a blessing to be misunderstood and marginalized and belittled and laughed at and maybe arrested and, and when those people in North Korea are found with the Bible and they're, them and every living family member, whether they're a part of it or not, are kind of dragged to a work camp and tortured to death. Do they look like they're serving an all-powerful God who's allowing that to happen? No, they really don't. They don't look just like Christ didn't look like much on the cross, didn't look like he was the son of God. But he was, okay? And who knows, maybe in the aftermath of some of that horrible carnage, which you don't hear about. That's the real problem in North Korea. Uh, I don't i don't think they're dumb enough to throw nukes at us because we, we'd be forced to radi, radiate the entire uh, real estate there. I, I think what they're doing to their population is the real horrific thing. It's like Hitler, you know, 50 years later, 70 years later. But yeah, Christ taught that principle. The apostle Paul, here's a verse that I don't hear quoted very often, but I love this verse. Paul says, uh, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the kind of stuff we're going through, is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. He's not saying don't say it doesn't hurt. He's just saying put the hurt in a bigger context. That God's got all eternity to uh smooth over the scars you may uh suffer on earth. I've often said there's some scars you can uh uh, receive on earth that can't be healed this side of heaven. You know, I've talked to people who have gone through such horrific suffering so unfair so uh out of nowhere and you think why? Why would God let this happen? I mean what's going on here? But God's got all eternity to make it right and if he can turn a cross into the ultimate thing of glory he can take the worst thing, the most unfair thing that happens to you and do the same thing and then remember the whole book starts with the same premise go back to 1 Peter that is You know, he says, uh, I'm writing this to people who are, uh, par epidemois, who are aliens, who have lost their jobs and their pensions. They're, they're on the road. Heath, you can relate to this. The people he's writing to have been forced to go hundreds of miles from their home because they're Christians. They've had to leave everything. They've got nothing but their shoes and their shirt on their back. And he says, uh, verse six, after talking about how great heaven's going to be, and that's not irrelevant. And that's where he starts. He says, In this you rejoice, even though now for a little while you've been forced to be distressed by various trials, but your faith can be shown against that black background, and God will vindicate you both now and in eternity for sure, and you should uh, and must rest in that. So we've said context is really important. I tried to stress that verses 13 through 17, it's better to do the right thing under God and face suffering for it than to avoid doing the right thing and avoid the suffering. Let's put 13 through 17 and then 18 through 22 together. I think together what they're saying to us, and I'll close with this, is even in the midst of the worst kind of unfair suffering, believers, put your name in the blank if you're a believer, can choose stability of character. You can't control your circumstances. You can choose to control your character knowing that God is glorified by and will vindicate believers who suffer unfairly but in faith. So we're not doubting, pouting, and dropping outing. You know, this passage is written to believers then and now. It will not make sense to unbelievers. But you're not called to understand and apply this as an unbeliever. Uh, you are called to look at Christ and the cross. The Bible says that all of us have broken God's standards, and at our worst we break our own standards and God is inherently holy and righteous and he's offended he's judicially grieved by our uh, imperfections and by our sins uh and uh he can't just overlook and pretend like they didn't happen he can't just whitewash them so in order to be just and the, and and also to be able to forgive people like horrible people like Brad McCoy that payment price must be paid. The, the moral debt we owe to God must be made right. And if we pay our own debt, we go to hell. Okay, But God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Uh, on the cross, hanging between heaven and earth, the just for the unjust, once for all, died for everything that could keep Connie Norton out of heaven or David Yeager out of heaven uh, or Brad McCoy out of heaven. And he died, made the victorious proclamation to spirits in Sheol, and then was visibly, literally, supernaturally resurrected from the dead on Easter Sunday, right? And as the crucified God-man Savior he is the basis for eternal life to everyone who in faith will receive him for that purpose. You know, uh, what does he say to the woman in the well who has been uh, married five times and divorced, probably her fault because she has boyfriends, and now she's living with some guy? What does he say to her? If you knew who I was, you'd ask me. I give you eternal life, right? What does he say to Nicodemus? So he's saying to her, nobody's so bad they can't have this. But what does he say to Nicodemus, the religious? hero in Judaism. He says, you got to be born again. Just being a really good Jew isn't good enough. Being really religious can't save you, right? No one's so good, they don't need salvation in Christ. No one's so bad, they can't have it. But it's all about the work of Christ. Salvation is of the Lord. What must I do to be saved? Acts 16.30. The answer is, be circumcised, be baptized, be catechized, join the church, stop smoking, sign a card, walk the aisle. Now, what, the answer to the question was, what must it to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I always believed in Jesus. I always believed there was a guy named Jesus, did miracles, did stuff, rose from the dead. Uh, that's mental assent. Saving faith is active, receptive trust. As many as received him, to them he gave the right. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. Uh, my pastor didn't help me much. My mommy, my, she was really messed up. My dad was really messed up. And people nowadays blame all everybody else for their problems. Lord, Lord, I'm a sinner, um, I've had some bad inputs, but it's my fault ultimately, and I've offended, I've offended you, and I know that. I know I owe you a debt I can't pay, but I believe that Jesus died as my substitute. And I know a lot of people don't believe that in 21st century America, but I believe he literally died on the cross to pay my sin debt, and he rose again, and I want him to be my savior. That's full consent of the will, not just mental assent about random facts about Jesus that you heard in Sunday school, but active, receptive trust. And, hey, Robert, you don't have to be a theologian to be saved. The gangster on the cross didn't go through all that verbiage. He just says, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. What does that mean? He's saying, I've done some really bad stuff. I deserve to get eternal punishment. Uh, you don't look like the Son of God, Savior, but I believe you are, and I want that to apply to me. I want you to save me based on who you are and what you're doing. And what does Jesus say? Man, I wish you talked to me last week because we've got to go to a new new members class to figure this out. Now he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The upper compartment of Sheol, okay? Now I'm going to have to leave for like an hour during that period to talk to the spirits, you know, in Tartarus. But you'll see me. Isn't that amazing? It all fits together, man. So that's where it starts. And our invitation to you, if you've never trusted Christ, is today Can be the day of salvation, but if it's real, you do it between you and God in your heart. And if you trust Christ today, uh, tell us. We'd love to know. Uh, We can baptize you in three hours, you know, if you've got the time. But, uh, uh, that's a symbol. That's, uh, it's not the substance, right? For the rest of us, uh, there are people here who in the midst of this kind of crucible and others of us, you know, pray for them and others of us are always, all of us are always susceptible to this. So even in the worst of, Amidst the worst kind of suffering, we can choose stability of a character and we're expected to and realize that God's going to vindicate us even when we suffer unfairly and nobody else understands our pain or our angst. God does and he'll be with us in and will vindicate us ultimately eternally. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, so many uh, interesting facets of this passage, you know, we tried to uh, paint a broad brush here, but ultimately it's all about this, the example of Christ of unfair suffering in which you vindicate in the ultimate sense and you're right in the middle of the worst of it with him. And for people in this, in this, uh, auditorium, uh, they're in a crucible like that. Some of them have been dealing with something very specific, very painful, very unfair for a long while now. And I pray that you would encourage them that you're, you're right there with them in the valley and you're going to vindicate them as they choose to walk in faith. And uh, they've got a connection with you they can never lose. And for the rest of us, uh, help us to uh, think clearly through passages like this. Uh, realize there are ways to explain some of these inexplicable statements. We don't have to believe that water baptism saves us because when Peter's talking about waters destroying the world, he can't be talking about water baptism saving New Testament Christians. He must be talking about something else. Help us to realize if we just look closely in context, uh, You know, there's, there's always going to be a clarity that comes there that fits in with the clear things of Scripture. Uh, open hearts to believe. The rest of us help us to be really encouraged, to hang in there in uh, the difficulties of life and to be uh, more encouraging and more participatory with others because as we help carry their load, it's a little bit lighter. I pray you'd be uh, blessed and direct the rest of this morning here in Christ's name we pray. Amen.